Phase the Seventh Fulfillment Part One This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifty Three It was evening at Emminster Vicarage. The two customary candles were burning under their green shades in the vicar's study, but he had not been sitting there. Occasionally he came in, stirred the small fire which sufficed for the increasing mildness of the spring, and went out again, sometimes pausing at the front door, going on to the drawing-room, then returning again to the front door. It faced westward, and though gloom prevailed inside, there was still light enough without to see with distinctness. Mrs. Clare, who had been sitting in the drawing-room, followed him hither. "'Plenty of time yet,' said the vicar. "'He doesn't reach Chalk-Newton till six, even if the train should be punctual, and ten miles of country road, five of them in Crimacrock Lane, are not jogged over in a hurry by our old horse.' "'But he has done it in an hour with us, my dear.' "'Years ago.' Thus they passed the minutes, each well knowing that this was only waste of breath the one essential being simply to wait. At length there was a slight noise in the lane, and the old pony-chaise appeared indeed outside the railings. They saw a light therefrom, a form which they affected to recognize, but would actually have passed by in the street without identifying, had he not got out of their carriage at the particular moment when a particular person was due. Mrs. Clare rushed through the dark passage to the door, and her husband came more slowly after her. The new arrival, who was just about to enter, saw their anxious faces in the doorway and the gleam of the west in their spectacles, because they confronted the last rays of day. But they could only see his shape against the light. "'Oh, my boy, my boy, home again at last!' cried Mrs. Clare who cared no more at that moment for the stains of heterodoxy which had caused all this separation than for the dust upon his clothes. What woman, indeed, among the most faithful adherents of the truth, believes the promises and threats of the word in the sense in which she believes in her own children, or would not throw away her theology to the wind if weighed against their happiness? As soon as they reached the room where the candles were lighted, she looked at his face. "'Oh, it is not Angel, not my son, the angel who went away,' she cried in all the irony of sorrow as she turned herself aside. His father, too, was shocked to see him, so reduced was that figure from its former contours, by worry and the bad season that Clare had experienced, in the climate to which he had so rashly hurried in his first aversion to the mockery of events at home. You could see the skeleton behind the man and almost the ghost behind the skeleton. He matched Crivelli's dead Christus. His sunken eye-pits were of morbid hue, and the light in his eyes had waned. The angular hollows and lines of his aged ancestors had succeeded to their reign in his face twenty years before their time. "'I was ill over there, you know,' he said. "'I am all right now.' as if, however, to falsify this assertion, his legs seemed to give way, and he suddenly sat down to save himself from falling. It was only a slight attack of faintness, resulting from the tedious day's journey and the excitement of arrival. "'Has any letter come for me lately?' he asked. 
I received the last you sent on by the merest chance, and after considerable delay, though being inland, or I might have come sooner. It was from your wife, we supposed. It was. Only one other had recently come. They had not sent it on to him, knowing he would start for home so soon. He hastily opened the letter produced, and was much disturbed to read in Tessa's handwriting the sentiments expressed in her last hurried scrawl to him. "'Oh, why have you treated me so monstrously, angel? I do not deserve it. I have thought it all over carefully, and I can never, never forgive you. You know that I did not intend to wrong you. Why have you so wronged me? You are cruel, cruel indeed. I will try to forget you. It is all injustice I have received at your hands. Tea. It is quite true, said Angel, throwing down the letter. Perhaps she will never be reconciled to me. Don't, Angel, be so anxious about a mere child of the soil, said his mother. Child of the soil? Well, we are all children of the soil. I wish she were so in the sense you mean. But let me now explain to you what I have never explained before, that her father is a descendant in the male line of one of the oldest Norman houses, like a good many others who led obscure agricultural lives in our villages, and are dubbed sons of the soil. He soon returned to bed, and the next morning, feeling exceedingly unwell, he remained in his room, pondering. The circumstances amid which he had left Tess were such that, though while on the south of the equator, and just in receipt of her loving epistle, it had seemed the easiest thing in the world to rush back into her arms the moment he chose to forgive her, now that he had arrived, it was not so easy as it had seemed. She was passionate, and her present letter, showing that her estimate of him had changed under his delay, too justly changed, he sadly owned, made him ask himself if it would be wise to confront her unannounced in the presence of her parents. Supposing that her love had indeed turned to dislike during the last days of separation, a sudden meeting might lead to bitter words. Claire, therefore, thought it would be best to prepare Tess and her family by sending a line to Marlet announcing his return, and his hope that she was still living with them there, as he had arranged for her to do when he left England. He dispatched the inquiry that very day, and before the week was out there came a short reply from Mrs. Durbeyfield, which did not remove his embarrassment, for it bore no address, though to his surprise it was not written from Marlet. Sir, I write these few lines to say that my daughter is away from me at present, and I am not sure when she will return, but I will let you know as soon as she do. I do not feel at liberty to tell you where she is temperly biding. I should say that me and my family have left Marlet for some time. Yours, J. Derbyfield. It was such a relief to Claire to learn that Tess was at least apparently well, that her mother's stiff reticence as to her whereabouts did not long distress him. They were all angry with him, evidently. He would wait till Mrs. Derbyfield could inform him of Tess's return, which her letter implied to be soon. He deserved no more. 
His had been a love which alters when it alteration finds. He had undergone some strange experiences in his absence. He had seen virtual Faustina in the literal Cornelia, a spiritual Lucretia in a corporeal Phryne. He had thought of the woman taken, and sat in the midst as one deserving to be stoned, and of the wife of Uriah being made a queen. And he had asked himself why he had not judged Tess constructively, rather than biographically, by the will rather than by the deed. A day or two passed while he waited at his father's house for the promised second note from Joan Derbyfield, and indirectly to recover a little more strength. The strength showed signs of coming back, but there was no sign of Joan's letter. Then he hunted up the old letter sent on to him in Brazil, which Tess had written from Flintcomb Ash, and re-read it. The sentences touched him now as much as when he had first perused them. I must cry to you in my trouble. I have no one else. I think I must die if you do not come soon, or, or tell me to come to you. Please, please, not to be just, only a little kind to me. If you would come, I could die in your arms. I would be well content to do that, if so be you had forgiven me. If you will send me one little line, and say, I am coming soon, I will bide on, angel, oh, so cheerfully. I ought to have known that such as that was not for poor me. Think how it do hurt my heart not to see you ever, ever. Oh, if I could only make your dear heart ache one little minute of each day, as mine does every day and all day long, it might lead you to show pity to your poor lonely one. I would be content, I glad to live with you as your servant, if I may not as your wife, so that I could only be near you and get glimpses of you and think of you as mine. I long for only one thing in heaven, or earth, or under the earth, to meet you, my own dear. Come to me, come to me, and save me from what threatens me. Clare determined that he would no longer believe in her more recent and severer regard of him, but would go and find her immediately. He asked his father if she had applied for any money during his absence. His father returned a negative, and then, for the first time, it occurred to Angel that her pride had stood in her way, and that she had suffered privation. From his remarks his parents now gathered the real reason of the separation, and their Christianity was such that, reprobates being their especial care, the tenderness towards Tess which her blood, her simplicity, even her poverty had not engendered, was instantly excited by her sin. Whilst he was hastily packing together a few articles for his journey, he glanced over a poor, plain missive also lately come to hand, the one from Marion and Is Hewitt, beginning, Honoured, sir, look to your wife, if you do love her as much as she do love you, from two well-wishers. CHAPTER 54 In a quarter of an hour Clare was leaving the house, whence his mother watched his thin figure as it disappeared into the street. 
he had declined to borrow his father's old mare, well knowing of its necessity to the household. He went to the inn where he hired a trap, and could hardly wait during the harnessing. In a very few minutes after he was driving up the hill out of the town which, three or four months earlier in the year, Tess had descended with such hopes, and ascended with such shattered purposes. Benville Lane soon stretched before him, its hedges and trees purple with buds. But he was looking at other things, and only recalled himself to the scene sufficiently to enable him to keep the way. In something less than an hour and a half he had skirted the south of the King's Hintock estates, and ascended to the untoward solitude of Cross in Hand, the unholy stone whereon Tess had been compelled by Alec d'Urberville, in his whim of reformation, to swear the strange oath that she would never willfully tempt him again. The pale and blasted nettle-stems of the preceding year even now lingered nakedly in the banks, young green nettles of the present spring growing from their roots. Thence he went along the verge of the upland overhanging the other hintocks, and, turning to the right, plunged into the bracing calcareous region of Flintcombe Ash, the address from which she had written to him in one of the letters, and which he supposed to be the place of sojourn referred to by her mother. Here, of course, he did not find her, and what added to his depression was the discovery that no Mrs. Clare had ever been heard of by the cottagers or by the farmer himself, though Tess was remembered well enough by her Christian name. His name she had obviously never used during their separation, and her dignified sense of their total severance was shown not much less by this abstention than by the hardships she had chosen to undergo of which he now learnt for the first time, rather than apply to his father for more funds. From this place they told him Tess Derbyfield had gone without due notice to the home of her parents on the other side of Blackmoor, and it therefore became necessary to find Mrs. Derbyfield. She had told him that she was not now at Marlott's, but had been curiously reticent as to her actual address, and the only course was to go to Marlott's and inquire for it. The farmer, who had been so churlish with Tess, was quite smooth-tongued to Clare, and lent him a horse and a man to drive him towards Marlott, the gig he had arrived in, being sent back to Emminster, for the limit of a day's journey with that horse was reached. Clare could not accept the loan of the farmer's vehicle for a further distance than to the outskirts of the Vale, and sending it back with the man who had driven him, he put up at an inn and next day entered on foot the region wherein was the spot of his dear Tess's birth. It was as yet too early in the year for much colour to appear in the gardens and foliage. The so-called spring was but winter overlaid with a thin coat of greenness, and it was of a parcel with his expectations. The house in which Tess had passed the years of her childhood was now inhabited by another family who had never known her. The new residents were in the garden, taking as much interest in their own doings as if the homestead had never passed its primal time in conjunction with the histories of others, beside which the histories of these were but as a tale told by an idiot. They walked about the garden paths with thoughts of their own concerns entirely uppermost, bringing their actions at every moment in jarring collision with the dim ghosts behind them talking as though the time when Tess lived there were not one whit intenser in story than now. Even the spring birds sang over their heads, as if they thought there was nobody missing in particular. 
On inquiry of these precious innocents, to whom even the name of their predecessors was a failing memory, Clare learned that John Derbyfield was dead, that his widow and children had left Marlet, declaring that they were going to live in Kingsbeer, but instead of doing so had gone on to another place they mentioned. By this time Clare abhorred the house for ceasing to contain Tess, and hastened away from its hated presence, without once looking back. His way was by the field in which he had first beheld her at the dance. It was as bad as the house, even worse. He passed on through the churchyard, where, amongst the new headstones, he saw one of a somewhat superior design to the rest. The inscription ran thus. In memory of John Derbyfield, rightly D'Urberville, of the once powerful family of that name, and direct descendant through an illustrious line from Sir Pagan D'Urberville, one of the knights of the Conqueror, died March tenth, eighteen blank. How are the mighty fallen! Some man, apparently the sexton, had observed Clare standing there, and drew nigh. Ah, sir, now there's a man who didn't want to lie here, but wished to be buried in Kingsbeer, where his ancestors be. And why didn't they respect his wish? Oh, no money. Bless your soul, sir, why, uh, there, I wouldn't wish to say it everywhere, but even this headstone, for all the flourish wrote upon it, is not paid for. Ah, who put it up? The man told the name of a mason in the village, and on leaving the churchyard, Clare called at the mason's house. He found that the statement was true, and paid the bill. This done, he turned in the direction of the migrants. The distance was too long for a walk, but Clare felt such a strong desire for isolation that at first he would neither hire a conveyance nor go to a circuitous line of railway by which he might eventually reach the place. At Shaston, however, he found he must hire, but the way was such that he did not enter Joan's place till about seven o'clock in the evening, having traversed a distance of over twenty miles since leaving Marlet. The village being small, he had little difficulty in finding Mrs. Derbyfield's tenement, which was a house in a walled garden, remote from the main road, where she had stowed away her clumsy old furniture as best she could. It was plain that, for some reason or other, she had not wished him to visit her, and he felt his call to be somewhat of an intrusion. She came to the door herself, and the light from the evening sky fell upon her face. That was the first time that Clare had ever met her, but he was too preoccupied to observe more than that she was still a handsome woman, in the garb of a respectable widow. He was obliged to explain that he was Tessa's husband, and his object in coming there and he did it awkwardly enough. "'I want to see her at once,' he added. "'You said you would write to me again, but you have not done so.' "'Because she've not come home,' said Joan. "'Do you know if she is well?' "'I don't. But you ought to, sir,' said she. "'I admit it. Where is she staying?' From the beginning of the interview Joan had disclosed her embarrassment by keeping her hand to the side of her cheek. "'I don't know exactly where she is staying,' she answered. "'She was, but where was she? Well, she is not there now.' In her evasiveness she paused again, and the younger children had by this time crept to the door, 
where, pulling at his mother's skirts, the youngest murmured, "'Is this the gentleman who is going to marry Tess?' "'He has married her,' Joan whispered. "'Go inside.' Claire saw her efforts for reticence, and asked, "'Do you think Tess would wish me to try and find her? If not, of course. I don't think she would. Are you sure?' "'I am sure she wouldn't.' He was turning away, and then he thought of Tess's tender letter. "'I am sure she would,' he retorted passionately. "'I know her better than you do. That's very likely, sir, for I have never really known her. Please tell me her address, Mrs. Derbyfield, in kindness to a lonely, wretched man.' Tess's mother again restlessly swept her cheek with her vertical hand, and seeing that he suffered, she at last said, in a low voice, "'She is at Sandbourne.' "'Ah, where, there? Sandbourne has become a large place, they say. I don't know more particularly than I have said. Sandbourne. For myself, I was never there.' It was apparent that Joan spoke the truth in this, and he pressed her no further. "'Are you in want of anything?' he said gently. "'No, sir.' she replied, "'We are fairly well provided for.' Without entering the house, Clare turned away. There was a station three miles ahead, and paying off his coachman, he walked thither. The last train to Sandbourne left shortly after, and it bore Clare on its wheels. CHAPTER 55 at eleven o'clock that night, having secured a bed at one of the hotels, and telegraphed his address to his father immediately on his arrival, he walked out into the streets of Sandbourne. It was too late to call on or inquire for any one, and he reluctantly postponed his purpose till the morning. But he could not retire to rest just yet. This fashionable watering-place, with its eastern and its western stations, its piers, its groves of pines, its promenades, and its covered gardens, was, to Angel Clare, like a fairy-place suddenly created by the stroke of a wand, and allowed to get a little dusty. An outlying eastern tract of the enormous Egdon Waste was close at hand, yet on the very verge of that tawny piece of antiquity such a glittering novelty as this pleasure city had chosen to spring up. Within the space of a mile from its outskirts every irregularity of the soil was prehistoric, every channel an undisturbed British trackway, not a sod having been turned there since the days of the Caesars. Yet the exotic had grown here, suddenly as the prophet's gourd, and had drawn hither Tess. By the midnight lamps he went up and down the winding way of this new world in an old one, and could discern between the trees and against the stars the lofty roofs chimneys, gazebos, and towers of the numerous fanciful residences of which the place was composed. It was a city of detached mansions, a Mediterranean lounging-place on the English Channel, and as seen now by night it seemed even more imposing than it was. The sea was near at hand, but not intrusive. It murmured, and he thought it was the pines. The pines murmured in precisely the same tones, and he thought they were the sea. Where could Tess possibly be, a cottage girl, his young wife, amidst all this wealth and fashion? The more he pondered, the more was he puzzled. 
Were there any cows to milk here? There certainly were no fields to till. She was most probably engaged to do something in one of these large houses, and he sauntered along, looking at the chamber windows and their lights going out one by one, and wondered which of them might be hers. Conjecture was useless, and just after twelve o'clock he entered and went to bed. Before putting out his light he re-read Tessa's impassioned letter. Sleep, however, he could not, so near her, yet so far from her, and he continually lifted the window-blind and regarded the backs of the opposite houses, and wondered behind which of the sashes she reposed at that moment. He might almost as well have sat up all night. In the morning he arose at seven, and shortly after went out, taking the direction of the chief post-office. At the door he met an intelligent postman coming out with letters for the morning delivery. "'Do you know the address of a Mrs. Clare?' asked Angel. The postman shook his head. Then, remembering that she would have been likely to continue the use of her maiden name, Clare said, "'Or of a Mrs. Derbyfield.' "'Derbyfield?' This also was strange to the postman addressed. Uh, "'There's visitors coming and going every day, as you know, sir,' he said, "'and without the name of the house tis impossible to find them.' One of his comrades hastening out at that moment, the name was repeated to him. "'I know no name of Derbyfield, but there is the name of Derberville at the Herons,' said the second. "'That's it!' cried Clare, pleased to think that she had reverted to the real pronunciation. "'What place is the Herons?' A stylish lodging-house. Tis all lodging-houses here, bless ye. Clare received directions how to find the house, and hastened thither, arriving with the milkman. The Herons, though an ordinary villa, stood in its own grounds, and was certainly the last place in which one would have expected to find lodgings, so private was its appearance. If poor Tess was a servant here, as he feared, she would go to the back door to that milkman, and he was inclined to go thither also. However, in his doubts he turned to the front and rang. The hour being early, the landlady herself opened the door. Clare inquired for Theresa Durberville or Derbyfield. "'Mrs. Durberville?' "'Yes. Tess, then, passed as a married woman, and he felt glad, even though she had not adopted his name.' "'Will you kindly tell her that a relative is anxious to see her?' "'It is rather early. What name shall I give her, sir?' "'Angel.' "'Mr. Angel?' "'No. Angel. It is my Christian name. She'll understand.' "'I'll see if she is awake.' He was shown into the front room, the dining-room, and looked out through the spring curtains at the little lawn, and the rhododendrons and other shrubs behind it. Obviously her position was by no means so bad as he had feared, and it crossed his mind that she must somehow have claimed and sold the jewels to attain it. He did not blame her for one moment. Soon his sharpened ear detected footsteps upon the stairs, at which his heart thumped so painfully that he could hardly stand firm. "'Dear me!' "'What will she think of me, so altered as I am?' he said to himself, and the door opened. Tess appeared on the threshold, not at all as he had expected to see her, bewilderingly otherwise, indeed. 
her great natural beauty was if not heightened rendered more obvious by her attire she was loosely wrapped in a cashmere dressing-gown of grey white embroidered in half-mourning tints and she wore slippers of the same hue her neck rose out of a frill of down and her well-remembered cable of dark brown hair was partially coiled up in a mass at the back of her head and partly hanging on her shoulder the evident results of haste he had held out his arms but they had fallen again to his side for she had not come forward remaining still in the opening of the doorway mere yellow skeleton that he was now he felt the contrast between them and thought his appearance distasteful to her tess he said huskily can you forgive me for going away can't you come to me how do you get to be like this it is too late said she her voice sounding hard through the room her eyes shining unnaturally i did not think rightly of you i did not see you as you were he continued to plead i have learnt too since dearest tessie mine too late too late she said waving her hand in the impatience of a person whose tortures cause every instant to seem an hour don't come close to me angel no you must not keep away but don't you love me my dear wife because i have been so pulled down by illness you are not so fickle i am come on purpose for you my my father and mother will welcome you now yes oh yes yes but i say i say it is too late she seemed to feel like a fugitive in a dream who tries to move away but cannot don't you know all don't you don't you know it yet how do you come here if you do not know i inquired here and there and i found the way i waited and waited for you she went on her tones suddenly resuming their old fluty pathos but you did not come and i wrote to you and you did not come he kept on saying you would never come any more and that i was a foolish woman he was very kind to me and to my mother and to all of us after father's death he i don't understand he has won me back to him claire looked at her keenly then gathering her meaning flagged like one plague-stricken and his glance sank it fell on her hands which once rosy were now white and more delicate she continued he is upstairs i hate him now because he told me a lie that you would not come again and you have come these clothes are what he's put upon me i didn't care what he did with me but will you go away angel please and never come any more they stood fixed their baffled hearts looking out of their eyes with a joylessness pitiful to see both seemed to implore something to shelter them from reality oh, it is my fault said claire but he could not get on 
speech was as inexpressive as silence but he had a vague consciousness of one thing though it was not clear to him till later that his original tess had spiritually ceased to recognize the body before him as hers allowing it to drift like a corpse upon the current in a direction dissociated from its living will a few instants passed and he found that tess was gone his face grew colder and more shrunken as he stood concentrated on the moment and a minute or two after he found himself in the street walking along he did not know whither chapter fifty six mrs brooks the lady who was the householder at the herons and owner of all the handsome furniture was not a person of an unusually curious turn of mind she was too deeply materialized poor woman by her long and enforced bondage to that arithmetical demon profit and loss to retain much curiosity for its own sake and apart from possible lodgers pockets nevertheless the visit of angel clare to her well-paying tenants mr and mrs d'urberville as she deemed them was sufficiently exceptional in point of time and manner to reinvigorate the feminine proclivity which had been stifled down as useless save in its bearings to the letting trade tess had spoken to her husband from the doorway without entering the dining-room and mrs brooks who stood within the partly closed door of her own sitting-room at the back of the passage could hear fragments of the conversation if conversation it could be called between those two wretched souls she heard tass reascend the stairs to the first floor and the departure of clare and the closing of the front door behind him then the door of the room above was shut and mrs brooks knew that tess had re-entered her apartment as the young lady was not fully dressed mrs brooks knew that she would not emerge again for some time she accordingly ascended the stairs softly and stood at the door of the front room a drawing-room connected with the room immediately behind it which was a bedroom by folding doors in the common manner this first floor containing mrs brooks best apartments had been taken by the week by the d'urbervilles the back room was now in silence but from the drawing-room there came sounds all that she could at first distinguish of them was one syllable continually repeated in a low note of moaning as if it came from a soul bound to some ixionian wheel oh 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 then a silence then a heavy sigh and again oh 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 the lady looked through the keyhole only a small space of the room inside was visible but within that space came a corner of the breakfast-table which was already spread for the meal and also a chair beside over the seat of the chair tess's face was bowed her posture being a kneeling one in front of it her hands were clasped over her head the skirts of her dressing-gown and the embroidery of her nightgown flowed upon the floor behind her and her stockingless feet from which the slippers had fallen protruded upon the carpet it was from her lips that came the murmur of unspeakable despair then a man's voice from the adjoining bedroom what's the matter she did not answer but went on in a tone which was a soliloquy rather than an exclamation and a dirge rather than a soliloquy. 
Mrs. Brooks could only catch a portion. And then my dear, dear husband came home to me, and I did not know it. And you had used your cruel persuasion upon me. You did not stop using it. No, you did not stop. My little sisters and brothers and my mother's needs, they were the things you moved me by. And you said my husband would never come back, never. And you taunted me and said what a simpleton I was to expect him. And at last I believed you and gave way. And then he came back. Now he is gone, gone a second time, and I have lost him now forever. And he will not love me the littlest bit ever any more, only hate me. Oh, yes, I have lost him now again because of you. In writhing, with her head on the chair, she turned her face towards the door, and Mrs. Brooks could see the pain upon it, and that her lips were bleeding from the clench of her teeth upon them, and that the long lashes of her closed eyes stuck in wet tags to her cheeks. She continued, And, and he is dying! He looks as if he is dying! and my sin will kill him, and not kill me. Oh, you have torn my life all to pieces, made me be what I prayed you in pity not to make me be again. My own true husband will never, never. Oh, God! I can't bear this. I cannot. There were more and sharper words from the man, then a sudden rustle. She had sprung to her feet. Mrs. Brooks, thinking that the speaker was coming to rush out of the door, hastily retreated down the stairs. She need not have done so, however, for the door of the sitting-room was not opened. But Mrs. Brooks felt it unsafe to watch on the landing again, and entered her own parlour below. She could hear nothing through the floor, although she listened intently, and thereupon went to the kitchen to finish her interrupted breakfast. Coming up presently to the front room on the ground floor, she took up some sewing, waiting for her lodgers to ring, that she might take away the breakfast, which she meant to do herself, to discover what was the matter, if possible. Overhead, as she sat, she could now hear the floorboards slightly creak, as if someone were walking about, and presently the movement was explained by the rustle of garments against the banisters, the opening and closing of the front door, and the form of Tess passing to the gate on her way into the street. She was fully dressed now, in the walking costume of a well-to-do young lady in which she had arrived, with the sole addition that over her hat and black feathers a veil was drawn. Mrs. Brooks had not been able to catch any word of farewell, temporary or otherwise, between her tenants at the door above. They might have quarrelled, or Mr. D'Urberville might still be asleep, for he was not an early riser. 
she went into the back room, which was more especially her own apartments, and continued her sewing there. The lady lodger did not return, nor did the gentleman ring his bell. Mrs. Brooks pondered on the delay, and on what probable relation the visitor who had called so early bore to the couple upstairs. In reflecting, she leant back in her chair. As she did so, her eyes glanced casually over the ceiling, till they were arrested by a spot in the middle of its white surface which she had never noticed there before. It was about the size of a wafer when she first observed it, but it speedily grew as large as the palm of her hand, and then she could perceive that it was red. The oblong white ceiling, with this scarlet blot in the midst, had the appearance of a gigantic ace of hearts. Mrs. Brooks had strange qualms of misgiving. She got upon the table and touched the spot in the ceiling with her fingers. It was damp, and she fancied that it was a bloodstain. Descending from the table, she left the parlour and went upstairs, intending to enter the room overhead, which was the bedchamber at the back of the drawing-room. But, nerveless woman as she had now become, she could not bring herself to attempt the handle. She listened. The dead silence within was broken only by a regular beat. Drip, drip, drip. Mrs. Brooks hastened downstairs, opened the front door, and ran into the street. A man she knew, one of the workmen employed at an adjoining villa, was passing by, and she begged him to come in and go upstairs with her. She feared something had happened to one of her lodgers. The workman assented, and followed her to the landing. She opened the door of the drawing-room, and stood back for him to pass in, entering herself behind him. The room was empty. The breakfast, a substantial repast of coffee, eggs, and a cold ham, lay spread upon the table untouched, as when she had taken it up, excepting that the carving-knife was missing. She asked the man to go through the folding-doors into the adjoining room. He opened the doors, entered a step or two, and came back almost instantly with a rigid face. "'My good God! The gentleman in bed is dead! I think he has been hurt with a knife! A lot of blood had run down upon the floor!' The alarm was soon given, and the house, which had lately been so quiet, resounded with the tramp of many footsteps, a surgeon among the rest. The wound was small, but the point of the blade had touched the heart of the victim, which lay on his back pale, fixed, dead, as if he had scarcely moved after the infliction of the blow. In a quarter of an hour the news that a gentleman who was a temporary visitor to the town had been stabbed in his bed spread through every street and villa of the popular watering-place. End of Part One